Mississippi Crop Situation Podcast featuring the Crop Doctors. Hey folks, Jason Bond in the Crop Doctors Podcast Studio in Stoneville. Good morning, Tom. Good morning, how are you? Tom's here and we have two very special guests with us this morning. Dr. David Shaw, Provost of Mississippi State. Good morning, Dr. Shaw. Good morning, Jason. And Dr. Coble is back with us. You promised you would come back, Doc, and here you are. I am. So we appreciate that. Was that you? You had just started when you I had on just with us started. Before. You were you were one of my first opportunities to speak to people when I got uh, the job in February. And we certainly certainly appreciate that. I think we've come a long way since then. You were the first episode that we did with the new music and logo and stuff. And I think we had an old chair when you were in here before. So now we've completely overhauled this thing. So now you're on the first episode with all the new equipment. If you come back again, I don't know what, I don't know what the well, new thing. I'm will be sure new. you'll have something new for me when I come back. There'll be new furniture, and the couch won't be here. <laughs> yeah, the the ratty. That's on the lit, the RTO couch. Yeah, That's what the I call. Ratty, the ratty couch. You sit on that couch, and you need a boom pole to get off of that couch. Well, you don't want to come off the couch. And actually, I think Angus is a slightly uh, upset about the fact that we're getting rid of the couch because his comment when I said that was, I like the couch. I'm like, dude, we have chairs. They're a little more comfortable than the couch. Dr. Shaw, Tom has probably been worried all morning about what I was going to ask you. So I always like to ask our guests some kind of random kooky question. I have asked questions about penguins and freezers and different things like that. <laughs> so I guess out of respect for you, I won't put you on the spot like that. But a lot of people may not know that you're a weed scientist by training. Obviously, that's how you and I have come to be associated with one another. And so I know there are tons of stories that I would like to hear you tell, and we'll have to save that for another day. And so then you think, you know, some people would say, well, ask him what his favorite weed is. I don't really care for that. What's your favorite herbicide? Because you've worked with a lot of herbicides over the years. Oh my gosh, that's a great question, and one that I probably have not spent enough time thinking on. I guess I'll give you two different answers. If I go back all the way, you know, I grew up farming yes, in sir. Oklahoma, and on a peanut farm, and we had all kinds of other crops as well. But, you know, if I think about the one that really opened my eyes to weed science, it's probably Treflan. Just from the standpoint that how many days of time that I spent hoeing weeds and when Treflan first came out, the game changer it was to be able to think about controlling crabgrass and pigweed and a lot of those small seeded uh, plants and how how many thousand man hours it saved just on our farm to be able to do something other than just hoeing all the time or cultivating or all of the other uh, tillage types of operations that we had to have. And then if I think about, you know, as I moved through my career, glyphosate and all that it did to be able to go from kind of that premier product that was a no-till uh, type of operation, and then with all of the advent of Roundup Ready Crops and the way that it, it, it changed my career personally from the standpoint of really shifting all of the focus in research uh, the way that it did and then shifting again when we saw the development of glyphosate-resistant weeds. And so those two probably would be the two that I would hold up. Good choices. So my dad would probably tell you, he listens He listens to this sometimes, but he would probably tell you that I 
got my start in in weed control with a hoe, and that's probably why I went into weed science because I got tired of chopping. Amen to that. In in his case, it would would have been spiny amaranth Mm -hmm. would have been the one that we chopped the most. Well, very good. Well, I know y'all are uh, on a special visit to Stoneville today, and we cannot thank you enough for taking time out of your schedule to sit down and, and talk with us. So I guess I'll, I'll just ask the typical question then as a Stoneville scientist, y- y'all don't regularly get over here, but what'd you think of the station this trip? Well, Tom, I'm going to flip that around and say, I can't tell you how many hundred times I've been to Stoneville. And, um, you know, going back to the Jason's question earlier, I was just, as we were t- doing the tour this morning and the tour actually was stimulated because our vice president for development um, has been at Mississippi State over two decades, and he had not had the opportunity to be here. And so, especially with Dr. Coble coming on new in his position, the three of us decided that it was way overdue for him to, to come and see what I knew and what Keith knew was just, just this jewel of the Delta Research and Extension Center. I quickly added up, and I think I've had 12 grad students myself that did their research here in Stoneville. And so, from my standpoint, the amazing part is as many times as I've been here in just a half a day of a tour, I've seen things that I didn't know were here. And I think that's just, just you know, kind of part and parcel of the jewel that DREC is, is that there's always something new going on that is just fabulous to see. That's good to hear. I, I live in Cleveland, and there are some people there that are not aware that this experiment station is here. And they're not necessarily aware that there is more or less a USDA side. Right. And then a Mississippi State University mm-hmm. side. So we're kind of tucked in a little hole here. And unless you pay attention to the sign on 61, you may neglect the fact that this experiment station is here, even though it is one of the largest ones in this hemisphere. Well, and I, I, I love John. Uh, Rush uh, is our VP for development, and we traveled yesterday. And actually, it's kind of been an interesting twofer because he'd also not not had the opportunity to go down to the uh, Waterways Experiment Station in Vicksburg. And so yesterday, we spent the day touring there, and today we're spending the day touring here. And many of the same conversations we had yesterday, the people in Vicksburg have no idea that there's a you know, $4 billion op- research operation that right there in Vicksburg, Mississippi. You know, the same thing can be said uh, that, that you just said here. You know, there's just this amazing crown jewel for ag research in the entire world uh, right here in Stoneville, Mississippi, and so many people even in Cleveland and, and you know, some of Indianola and, and much less Starkville and, and Jackson don't even realize what we have as this, 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 this priceless gem. The other thing that we were showing John this morning is, you know, historically, how many things that were innovative maybe 20 years ago or 30 years ago, the catfish industry and how it's evolved and, and uh, cover crop research that's going on here now uh, and, and things like that and the water center. You know, it, it really makes me proud to think how much of a difference that this center has made in Mississippi agriculture and, and, and had influences all around the world, too, at times. But how we continue to kind of are really focused on, you know, what's the next thing that we need to answer? What's the next question that we're going to be asked? And let's get ready to answer it. And so I saw a lot of evidence of that today, and that, that was exciting. We're here every day, and a lot of times we lose 
perspective on that of all the stuff that that was done here i mean it's a pretty historic institution and facility that we're at i mean i grew up here and i knew it was out here but i had no of course i had no concept of ag research at the time either but i I certainly didn't have any concept of the fact that something of this magnitude was you know just right down the road and then i kind of went around the south for a while going to school and stuff and then ultimately ended up back here and i've never been sorry for it but i'll turn that back to you like like you said dr shaw with tom y'all said a lot of folks not might not realize that this facility's here well related to mississippi state a lot of folks might not know that you're the provost but you're a weed scientist you grew up on a farm dr keenum is an ag economist so for agriculture in mississippi i mean you look at some of the other land grants around for agriculture who has the luxury of having that level of leadership with their roots in agriculture. So I would, I would love to hear your comments on that. I would certainly echo everything that you said, Jason. I, you know, I think Mississippi State and the state of Mississippi is really blessed to have somebody like Mark Keenum that is sitting there and has, you know, his heart is in exactly the spot that I think it needs to be in. And, you know, even you know, look across the leadership team at, at MSU, and I think we have really – stayed true to what land-grant universities were supposed to be about when they were created back, you know, 150 years ago. And so to, to think about where we have been, but to think about where we need to be going, you know, I'll echo what, what Keith said just a moment ago. You know, I think we have to continually be renewing what the land-grant mission is, and, you know, that is research and teaching and service to the state and to the nation and to the world. And to be able to do that, it all has to be working together. And so the opportunity to have the team that we have that really stays very closely tied to our stakeholders, and it's that balancing act that's continually there of of doing that really forward-leaning research to be able to be developing answers to questions before they even come up. But at the same time, educating that next generation and providing the service that's needed through our extension programs and through the outreach programs that we have to be able to have that beautiful mixture. And then I think to me what Stoneville really is the epitome of that. And we, as, as Keith said, we spent a good bit of time this morning not only talking about what MSU does, but what USDA does and how, you know, you can walk into the, the Thad Cochran Warm Water uh, Aquaculture Center and be able to say, I don't know if this person is a vet uh, school person or if they're a MAFIS person or an extension person or an ARS person. They're all focused on one thing. And that's what I have seen in my 36 years here at Mississippi State and especially have the opportunity now as, as the provost to be able to think about how we can really be thinking strategically about those kinds of partnerships and those kinds of making sure that there's not artificial silos and whether it's silos because of the structures that we have in extension research and teaching or an ARS or whether it's silos by disciplines. You know, we were talking just a few moments ago, the opportunities to, to even see guys like the two of you working together on this and rather than having a weed science podcast and a plant pathology podcast and a soils podcast, but rather bring Folks like the four of us together today just talk about what the needs are. And I think is an incredible hallmark of Mississippi State. From a leadership perspective, 
what do the two of y'all think? What's our next step? At least here, our group, which is the the people that I'm most familiar with, I think we're doing the things that we need to do in, in weed science, in plant pathology, entomology, and, and we've got some other pieces of our puzzle that are getting fitted in hopefully over the next six to eight months. So where do we go from here as an organization? And meaning, Doc, in your case, the Division of Ag, and then Dr. Shaw, the Mississippi State as a whole. First of all, because people are involved, getting teams with different disciplines to work together. Not every effort in that area works that well. You know, David just referred to the Aquaculture Center as a good example. Sometimes we try that and it doesn't pan out and we need more of that going forward. And I think some of the conversations that we've had strategically is how do we really kind of reward people and incentivize people to work together as multidisciplinary teams. And sometimes that's hard. I'm an economist. Uh, When you start talking about molecules and the methods by which you kill a weed, I'm lost. So well, you lose you, you lose me pretty quick. We had we had Brian Mills and, and Will Maples in here, and they're just like whoosh. And it so gets over my head quickly, you, you know, to get. But there's a great benefit of having those kind of interactions, but it really, in part, it takes a lot of patience on the on the part of scientists to ask the right questions, have them explain what they mean. Why, what does that term mean to them that you don't know what it means and things like that. So you don't just snap your fingers and get a group of scientists from different disciplines going together. It has to be a lot of commitment of time for them to kind of learn enough about each other and what they do and why they're saying it to then have the effective interface. And I, you know, I think I see that over here a, a lot, but it, it takes great effort and a commitment. And I think our challenge is to figure out how we reward people for doing that. You know, from, I, I agree with everything to, that Dr. Cole said to me, to, I guess, to add on to that part of what I think makes a university great is to be able to see opportunities even before their opportunities and to be able to, as Keith just said, be sure that the incentives are right so that people are willing to take risks. Sometimes they don't work out. But, uh, you know, one of, the, one of the opportunities that we spent some time talking about this morning is, is work that's going on with the, uh, the Alluvial Aquifer Center that's here. And, of course, that's, that was a very visionary program that was created through a lot of cooperation with a lot of folks here in Stonewall and in the Delta to be able to address a problem. But I think the opportunity that I see that it's creating is the, as we think about water as a resource, we're a water-rich state compared to California and the disaster that's unfolding there and the Ogallala Reservoir and the fact that they know when, what year they're basically going to run out of water. And so for us to be thinking now about how we protect and preserve this amazing resource that we have, but also take advantage of the challenges that are out there in other parts of the country, really positions Mississippi State and the state of Mississippi in an amazing spot if we have the foresight to take advantage of the opportunities that we see out there on the horizon. Flip side of that is if it'll, it'll be shame on us if we just say, well, we're just going to continue to do business as usual. 
And so I think MSU and our partners are really well positioned to be able to use that as an example to be able to say, we, if we think strategically, we can really position ourselves to be able to be an absolute leader, not only nationally, but globally, because of the agricultural resources that we have here in the state. And that's, that's not water and that's not soils, that's people. And that's commitment to agriculture. And I think that's that's one of the great aspects of Mississippi State is we really have people that are willing to say we're going to take a leadership role in that arena. Well, and it's not just that. You know, both Jason and I have been other places before we got to Mississippi State. And, and I had been at Texas A&M. And when I was at A&M, there was a real struggle to remain relevant. And one of the things that they really chose to do that some of the more elder faculty were upset about was changing the course and the tune of what agriculture meant and making it more of a dirty, more complex word. And that's, that's not where our stakeholders really want their focus. And they want ag to remain relevant in either an extension or a research component and how we work across those lines. So it's fantastic to see that our administrative team is really focused on keeping that relevance. How do we continue that moving forward? Because I definitely, I get that feel from y'all and I'm sure y'all have conversations behind doors that don't necessarily involve us to begin with. But that's really the important part for us is Ag has to remain relevant for the people within the state and then in a greater regional perspective across a whole bunch of disciplines and how we bring people forward into that area and continue that to move forward. I think you're exactly right, Tom. We've got all these opportunities. We've got all these challenges as well uh, in terms of how do we keep agriculture in this state at the cutting edge? How do we compete with the uh, other parts of the world, production in Brazil or other places? Last night, I was sending emails to some of the faculty in the division about uh, the food supply chain. There was a hearing on uh, on the Capitol Hill yesterday about the, the meat supply chain. And we're not only in a world where we can kind of focus just on production, but increasingly the consumer is reaching all in and influencing the way we produce more than they ever have before. And I think one of the best examples of that is sustainability. When consumers say they want their food produced sustainably, well, what does that mean? What does that look like? How, How do we do that in cotton versus soybeans versus corn? What's that look like in the Mississippi Delta versus the Midwest? It's exciting, but it's also challenging for us to figure out how to do these things. And, you know, we were just overlooking at the 21-gun plots and, and, and the research that's being done over there. And, and you know, cover crops are a very hot topic right now. And so my background in agricultural policy One of my greatest frustrations in Washington, D.C. is this kind of mentality that says, well, uh, agriculture is what I see out my back door. And I can remember one of the first conversations I had about cover crops, which was somebody from Ohio who had uh, really steep slopes, different corn, soybean agriculture. And, you know, here we have very varied soil types, 
generally flat soils and things like that. And in D.C., there is this tendency to kind of say, well, if it works in my location, then it works. And yet that's the hard part for us to have policy in USDA. And, and that's part of the reason we have the partnership with ARS that's, that's out here is so that USDA can address the different regions, the different parts of the country. But every once in a while that gets forgotten, and we have to remind people of that. That even gets forgotten on a state level, too. I mean, Mississippi, not unique compared with our neighbors. We have different production regions in the Mm -hmm. state, and the Delta is very different from the Black Prairie, is very different from the coastal plain. And that's why we have research stations scattered all over the state. And and in my new job, that's one of the things I run into all the time is you've done that research in this region. Does that translate to this region? I get really self-conscious when we go and speak in an area where we don't work as often because I worry that what I'm saying is relevant you know, yeah. to what their what the needs are in, in that area because I'm not always completely up to speed on it. But don't you find in some cases it is very much the same, and then every once in a while you're like, "Oh no, yes, it's sir. different." <laughs> yeah, the, you know, big picture, big picture translates across the areas, and then there's you know some of the more specifics that are actually specific to that production region. Jason, what I'd like to kind of chime in, we've talked a good bit about the research and the outreach side of things, you know, wearing the hat that I wear now, you know, we're also thinking a lot at Mississippi State about what does it mean to be relevant from an from an uh, educational standpoint. And, uh, you know, I think, you know, it, and that's not just updating my lecture notes from a year ago or 10 years ago. It's really rethinking what are the curricula that we need to be putting together to, number one, attract students to agriculture, but also be sure that they're getting the education that they need. And whether they're majors in agriculture and veterinary medicine and forestry within Keys Division, or whether it's business and engineering and, ed- and uh, you know, education uh, in general, we're just doing a lot of rethinking about some of the things that we have always been doing don't necessarily need to be done the way that they were. And so I think we're really doing a deep dive right now into things like how do we really rethink the partnership? And we had a great conversation here at Mississippi Delta Community College uh, not too long back thinking about ways that we could work together in some new and different ways. And we've, we've been thinking about, you know, how do we reconstruct curricula and how do we think about taking advantage of some of the technologies that we have out there now in, in data science and in health and health disparity and in precision agriculture and in uh, autonomous systems, you know. And we're doing some great research in all of those areas that I just mentioned, but our curricula hasn't necessarily caught up to that. And so that's also exciting to be in the position that I'm in now is to help drive that conversation to really rethink. And then on top of that, think of are there some certificate programs or are there some stackable certificates that could turn into degrees and are there ways that we could leverage the partnerships that we have with community colleges to be able to make a more seamless transition. So it's really an exciting time from the educational standpoint as well as from research. Related to that, thing that we hear often from our stakeholders is the challenges that they have with 
their labor force? How do we get people interested in working on a farm and maybe not necessarily working on the farm, but working in, you know, allied agriculture? Well, I'll give you, I'll give you one example, and this is just one of many that, that I could hold up. But back two years ago, we created what's called a Bachelor of Applied Sciences. And so up until now, if somebody went to Mississippi Delta Community College and got a two-year degree on the technical side, those technical credits wouldn't transfer into MSU for an academic degree. And so, and across the entire state, whether they're working, you know, um, in agribusiness or whether they're working at a Nissan or a Toyota or a Halter Marine or whatever, those people, once they got into the workforce, really didn't have a good opportunity to, to back up and get a bachelor's degree unless they kind of started all over again. Well, this new BAS program, the Bachelor of Applied Sciences, allows those technical credits to all transfer in. And so now suddenly they're two years towards a four-year degree, and the other two years they can pick up online. So if, they're, if they have a job, if they have a family, if they have a mortgage, they can still go ahead and pick up that bachelor's degree And we have 41 different concentration areas, and that's everything from precision ag and unmanned aircraft systems all the way to management and engineering. And so I think that's part of that rethinking that we're doing right now is to how do we craft programs that are almost kind of a boutique program that can be tailored to the needs of the individual to be able to take somebody that has a two-year degree and now they can be able to get a promotion or be able to step into supervisory role where they really need some additional education and training. But historically, we've just not had a good pathway to make that happen. I think a lot of those workforce types of needs, we're doing a lot of listening to what the needs are and then trying to craft new academic programs to be able to meet those needs. I think your your question is a really good one from the standpoint. In agriculture, we need a a workforce that has different skill levels. We need people that are highly technical farm managers and and, and who who understand precision data and things like that. We also need people to drive tractors and do other roles on, on farms. You know, we tend to think of workforce development as uh, well, it's it's for the kid that doesn't really want to go to a four-year college. That we focused on that a lot. When in reality, my view on agriculture is we've got to get the right mix of people. And what David is touching upon is that if you have somebody comes out of high school and they say, you know, I don't want to go to college, uh, they go get a technical degree, and then ten years later, they've got a mortgage. They know their only way to move up in the company is to have a four-year degree, we're trying to make that bridge easier between those two. And so I, I think that's the way we've got to think about workforce in this state is it's it's not one type of worker, it's, it's a mixture. And in agriculture, I would argue that we're in the workforce development with our, and sometimes it's, it's advanced degrees, that we've got a shortage of people with advanced degrees to do crop scouting or things like that. So We've got to look at it kind of holistically, and it's not going to be one kind of education that answers all those questions. Well, and I wouldn't say agriculture is a one-size-fits-all, and that's obviously it's a 
it's becoming a challenging environment from that standpoint that we do need people to do some of these things that, you know, Jason and I, we weren't exposed to that when we were in college. That has come on to the scene in the years since we've been here. Drone technology, any of the additional precision ag information. And now you have a lot of these retail outlets hiring people for those types of roles and training those individuals will should definitely make ag more attractive because then in addition to that you have students coming out of high school with a different mindset or what they might want to consider to do down the road because everybody's track has been slightly different tom you're you're spot on and i think it's it's really on us at mississippi state to say instead of a here's what we do it's understand what the wishes and needs and talents are and meet them where they are. And I think that's a, that's a big mindset change for a university. Well, it's a mindset change for us, too. You take me, for example. I mean, I'm a field guy. I want to go look at stuff and solve problems. That's what I want to get up in the morning and do. Well, what if the folks that work for me, what if that's not what they're interested in. What if they're interested in an, another aspect of our program that maybe we do a serviceable job in, but not, you know, we're not really selling that to them as, hey, you can go do this. So I would say in my case, it's incumbent upon me to let them know, hey, if this is what you want to do, let's blow it up and we'll do it to the level that really interests you. And I have a hard time with that because, I mean, we all get in a rut and my rut is running up and down the road looking at, at weed control problems and trying to fix them. Jason, you know, it's it's interesting that you say that because, you know, I still have a little bit of research that I'm doing myself as a weed scientist, but it's morphed dramatically over my 36-year career. And probably the most fun that I'm having as a weed scientist right now is looking at some of the issues related to herbicide resistance, but it's partnering with, with rural sociologists, with economists, and with a number of the other pest disciplines to say, you know, there are different ways of thinking about this rather than this just being a chemistry problem or a biology problem because this is a good example of, of and Keith and I have talked about this in our in our personal background roles, you know, the decisions that people make is what drives resistance. And so unless you can get into the sociological dimensions and the economic dimensions and, frankly, the psychological dimensions of why people make the decisions they do, we as weed scientists can't address it. I mean, we can do research all day long on the physiology of it and the biology of it, but unless you can get into the decision-making process itself. And so, you know, I've been working with folks all over the country that I would have never imagined working with 10 years ago. And it's just really a mindset change for me as a weed scientist to be able to get way outside of my comfort zone. You know, uh, let me take it another direction. When you ask that question, what it struck me is that uh, the number of kids growing up in rural America are, they're not as many as they used to be. Farms have gotten bigger, so the population is is fairly small. And what really intrigues me are some of these kids that grew up in suburbia, more urban areas, and they find agriculture and they're just they fall in love. There's a young woman working in Memphis for Helena Chemical that uh, when I first met her, she was interested in the environment, and then 
she became more aware of agriculture and the more she was around it, the more she loved it. And part of what we've got to do are, is to help these kids who may not have the ag background have the skill set that they need when the agribusiness industry wants to hire them. And we've been talking about a process of transformational change at the university and, and, and Ruben Smolsky, who's on that committee out, out of the College of Forest Resources, he's like, uh, you know, experiential learning, well, that's what we do in the ag division. And I thought, yeah, most of the time, but not always. And, and how, do we, how do we take a kid who has expressed an interest uh, in agriculture and who would do a great job in agriculture, but they've not, you know, they've never ridden a tractor and, and those kind of things. And how do we get them ready? Because some of them are going to be needed in this industry next decade. We taught Tom how to drive a tractor. <laughs> yeah. And he actually then took that upon himself one weekend to learn, to relearn how to do that over the telephone. So <laughs> that, that was, that was not easy, but um, it, one, it's just kind of throwing yourself into this situation and realizing that, Hey, there's nobody here that day and it has to get done. So I think I can do that. So Tom, what's your, what's your story? Where did you come from? I was just sitting here thinking about that when you were talking about that. You know, my, my father was a, was a banker. And Jason always says, well, he went to law school. I thought he was a lawyer. Well, he, he ran trust divisions in the upper Midwest. So we bounced all over and he started in Pittsburgh. He grew up in Bradford and actually worked at the oil refinery to put himself through college. And everybody harassed his father about make sure this guy goes to college. He really does not need to be working at the refinery for the rest of his life. Like the rest of us has, he's actually fairly intelligent, he should go do that. So he worked at the oil refinery and bagged groceries at the local grocery store, worked two jobs to put himself through college. So then I'm like the second generation that actually went to college, but you know, bounced all over the upper Midwest and went into biology and then just kind of fell backwards into agriculture. And, and this is, I mean, my dad still harasses me. He's like, I can't believe you just put pants and a shirt on. I'm like, yeah, well, dad, I know you, you put a business suit on every day and that's what you did. And you ran that office type structure. That's just, that's not for me. I'm not wired like that. I want to get dirt on my shoes and get down on my hands and knees. But, you know, getting kids to understand at the end of the day that when Prospective grad students walk through my door. Usually the first question I ask them is, okay, would you like a program that's tailored for lab and inside? Or are you of the mindset that you want to throw yourself to the uh, blast furnace that is the day that's been pretty much this week, 90 plus degree temperatures, can you handle that? Do you want to be an outdoor person? And that's usually where in the plant pathology sense we can set things. But in the greater umbrella area of agriculture, we can do that now in a lot of respects with multiple disciplines. Kids can go into weed science and do things in a greenhouse or grow chamber or laboratory and not have to set foot outside. That's still a respectable interest and field to get into. That's where we have to attract some of these kids. You can grow up on a farm just like Dr. Shaw did, and you may not have to set foot outside and get your feet dirty if you don't want to do that. But your background and experience and exposure to ag is important. Right. And that's what we've got to attract and instill in these kids. And that's, you know, the part I've been passionate about that since I got here that because I think the story that I have is important. You know, I grew up in suburbia and didn't, 
I grew up around farms all over the place, Fort Wayne, Indiana, Columbus, Ohio, Naperville, Illinois, Pittsburgh, some of those places. But if you don't set foot outside and look outside your backyard sometimes, you miss what's going on across the side of the fence. And there may be something there that's attractive for you in the future to go and and get into something that would be a a decent profession. Well, Dr. Shaw, Dr. Coba, we certainly appreciate y'all taking time out of your morning to sit down with us. I know y'all are on a tight schedule. We certainly appreciate the leadership that both of y'all provide to Mississippi State. And then, uh, you know, personally, I value the relationship I have with with both of you. So uh, I look forward to working with you more in the future. Jason, we we both appreciate it immensely. Thank you for what you you two are doing for things like this. I think this is another good example of the way that we need to be leaning forward to meet the needs of people as opposed to just doing what we've always done. And so second she reached out and asked if we'd be willing to do it, I jumped at it, as you know, because uh, I just I think these are the kinds of things that we need to be doing. Absolutely. We appreciate it. The Mississippi Crop Situation Podcast is a production of Mississippi State University Extension.